0: This is Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And now your host, Michael O'Fallon. For this Christmas season, Let's begin with a word from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, many of you have heard about my great interest in Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon from the second century, in what is known now as France. I have done more than just primary research regarding Irenaeus, traveling to the gravesite that held his body for nearly 1,200 years. Going back to the historical record that accompanied his life in courageous struggle against what was then a great heresy, one that we now are dealing with afresh in today's world. Irenaeus, writing in the late 2nd century AD, was combating a heresy that had come along and proved to be a grave threat to the Church of Jesus Christ, while at other points in the history of the early Church, the threat came from those who denied that Christ was God – The threat Irenaeus was facing was more or less just the opposite. He was, rather, embattling a movement that denied that Christ came in the flesh. The movement is referred to as Gnosticism, and it worked from their fundamental premise that matter itself was evil. The physical in and of itself was the evil that must be defeated by spiritual means, to put it simply, the God described in the Old Testament was not the true God in their eyes, but rather a lesser evil deity who created the world. He had to be an evil God because he created matter or physicalness. Now, as I say this, remember how I normally begin my podcast is that we are being transitioned from a objective, physical, real world into a digital, subjective world surreal world. So, to put it simply, the God described in the Old Testament was not a true God. So, the Gnostics, correspondingly, could not conceive of a salvation that was in any way founded on the physical incarnation. The truly good Gnostic God, who is pure spirit, could not possibly have gone through the process of providing redemption by an act of incarnation, an act of enfleshment, because matter, physicalness, and flesh are evil. So the Gnostics denied that there really was an act of incarnation, enfleshment. And instead, the Gnostics envisioned their Gnostic Christ only apparently took on human flesh but not really. And the Gnostic Christ had not enter the world to provide salvation by his death on the cross. The Gnostic Christ left the human body he had temporarily assumed before the crucifixion, the man Jesus died on the cross, not the Gnostic Christ who had simply been using his body. The Gnostic Christ came to provide freedom from the demiurge God of the Old Testament, you know, the one about matter and physicalness. The false Gnostic Christ does this, not by incarnation, death, and resurrection, but by the teaching of some esoteric sort of wokish knowledge, a gnosis, that lifts the soul to a higher plane above the material fleshly world. Let's just call that becoming woke. Well, Hans Urs von Balthasar, in his book... The Scandal of the Incarnation, Irenaeus Against the Heresies, describes very well exactly what an insidious threat this Gnosticism was to the early church. And he states this, quote, So-called Gnosis was an enormous temptation in the early church. By contrast, persecution, even the bloodiest, posed far less of a threat to the church's continuing purity and further development. Gnosticism had its roots in late antiquity, And it drew on Oriental and Jewish sources and multiplied into innumerable esoteric doctrines and sects. Then, like a vampire, the parasite took hold of the youthful bloom and vigor of Christianity. What made it so insidious was the fact that the Gnostics very often did not want to leave the church. Instead, they claimed to be offering a superior and more authentic exposition of Holy Scripture. Though, of course, this was only for the superior souls, the spiritual, the pneumatic. The common folk, the psychic, were left to get on with their crude practices. It's not hard to see how this kind of compartmentalizing of the church's members, indeed of mankind as a whole, inevitably encouraged not only an excited craving for higher initiation— But almost an unbounded arrogance in those who had moved from mere faith to real, enlightened knowledge. So, from Balthazar's very general description, we can see that Gnosticism is radically anti Christian. Irenaeus, with great understanding of both the objectively true Christian faith and a knowledge of the Gnostic heresy in all its forms, understood this and then decided to show it for what it really was. Irenaeus understood that Christianity is about the divine and spiritual word becoming flesh and body. The redemption depends on the real incarnation, the real suffering on the cross, and the real resurrection of the flesh. All three of these are a scandal for Gnosticism. Against the Gnostics, it was important for Irenaeus to show that Christ was not some spiritual being who merely, for a short time, period of time lived inside a human person, almost as if he was kind of possessing that person. It was important to demonstrate that the New Testament teaching was that there was a true union of divine and human in the man Christ Jesus, and that this divine human person by his life, death, resurrection, provided redemption for all those who put their trust in him, also which should be understood biblically as all those that the Father called the elect, whom the Father will never cast out of the saving hand of Christ. And it was also important to show that Christ did not come to save us from the Old Testament God, from the inferior Old Testament conceptions of what God was like, this evil physical God, against the spiritual Sophia wisdom, Christ. It was important to demonstrate that the God of the Old Testament was indeed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was important to show that it was this very same Old Testament God who initiated the incarnation of Christ. With this background, we see why so much of Uranus' writing was focused on the incarnation. And we can also see, even today, how certain sects of, let's say, the new Christian church, the newly reformed movement of the Christian Church are bringing various elements of this ancient Gnostic heresy forward into our day, while still wanting to be thought of as Christian. As a matter of fact, they've used entryism to try to push those of us that are Orthodox out, those of us of the old Christians. They're bringing in the new spirituality. So, in various ways, they deny the full implications of what it means for Christ to have become truly human. And they also deny the portrayal of God in the Old Testament, arguing that Christ came to save us from those Old Testament conceptions of God. In this light, then, for this Christmas season, I encourage you to listen to this selection from Irenaeus' Proof of the Apostolic Preaching, chapters 37-39, through which reads this, Quote, In this way, he gloriously accomplished our salvation and fulfilled the promise made to the patriarchs and dissolved the old disobedience, the son of God and the son of Abraham. For in accomplishing and recapitulating these things in himself, in order to obtain life for us, the word of God became flesh by the economy of the virgin in order to undo death and vivify man. For we were in the prison of sin, we who have become sinners and fallen under the power of death. Rich in mercy was God the Father. He sent the creative word, who, coming to save us, was in the same place and situation in which we were when we lost life breaking the bonds of the prison. And his light appeared and dispelled the darkness of the prison and sanctified our birth and abolished death, loosening the same bonds by which we were trapped. And if one does not accept his birth from a virgin, how can he accept his resurrection from the dead? So, If he was not born, neither did he die. And if he did not die, neither was he raised from the dead. Death is not conquered, nor its kingdom destroyed. And if death is not conquered, how are we to ascend to life, having fallen under death from the beginning? So those who reject the salvation of man and do not believe of God, that he will raise them from the dead, They also despise the birth of our Lord, which he underwent for us. The word of God became flesh, that he demonstrate the resurrection of the flesh and the preeminence of all things in heaven. For he is the firstborn of the Father's counsel, the perfect word, guiding and governing all things while on earth, as he was the firstborn of the virgin. A man righteous, holy, pious, good, pleasing to God, perfect in all things, saving all who follow his tracks from hell, for he is the firstborn from the dead and the author of the life of God. End quote. Charles Spurgeon said the following regarding the Incarnation quote, Galatians 1 4. States this, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. That a wonderful text in Galatians one four. did you ever meditate upon it? Jesus never gave himself for our righteousness, but he did give himself for our sins. Sin is a horrible evil, a deadly poison, yet it is this which gives Jesus his title of Savior when he overcomes it. What a wonder this is. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins fully, entirely, and perfectly. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, says Matthew 121. Jesus is nothing at all if he is not a savior. He is anointed to this very end. His very name is a sham if he does not save his people from their sins. This is is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is the one and only Savior. He and none but he shall save his people. He and not another shall save them by his own act and deed. Singly, unaided, he shall save his people personally and not by another. In his own name and on his own behalf, he shall, by himself, purge away his people's sins. He shall do all the work and leave none of it undone. He shall begin it, carry it on, and complete it. And therefore is his name called Jesus, Savior, because he shall fully, entirely, and perfectly save his people from their sins. Jesus has come to seek and save those who were lost. If he does not save... He was born in vain, for the object of his birth was the salvation of sinners. If he shall not be a savior, then his mission in coming to this earth has missed its end, for its design was that lost sinners might be saved. Lost one? Lost one, if there were news that an angel had come to save you, there might be some good cheer in it, but there are better tidings still. God himself has come. The infinite, the almighty, has stooped from the highest heaven that he may pick you up, a poor, undone, and worthless worm. End quote. And with that, Have a very Merry Christmas from all of us here at Sovereign Nations to you and your loved ones. This has been Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic.